you know, I want you to think for a second with me about leaders that you've known, even from childhood. People that, you know, you, you grow up, you start off with leaders or teachers in your school. That's who leads you. You go to school, you're in a class, and they kind of lead you. Then you get out from there and you go maybe play sports and you're on a sports team, your coaches are your leaders. And then if you get out of, you know, high school or college and you go into a workplace, you have some kind of boss there. If you're in the military, you have lots of leaders that you encounter, right? Uh, and so we've all been exposed to leaders, good and bad, throughout our life, right? I mean, everybody would agree with that. We, we, we're exposed. And the leaders that make us want to follow them are leaders usually of character. Even if they're tough on us, if they have character, we respect them. But the leaders who have no character are the leaders that we don't think care about us. We have a hard time following, right? If we're honest. And we, can't, we, don't, we don't trust that they care about our best interest. Like, if you know somebody's a leader and you think they care more about themselves than the group or you, are you more inclined to follow that person or less inclined when they tell you to do something? You're less. When I was in the Marine Corps, I was a lieutenant stationed out west, and I had a CO, a colonel, who did not like me simply because of the fact that I was a Christian. And that's okay, but he would see me coming, and if there was nobody else around to witness it, instead of, because you have to salute, you salute, you know, if you see the guy out there, if you're walking, you salute him, and he would salute me with a middle finger. And then he would say, being a lieutenant sucks, doesn't it? That's what he would say. He did have problems, right? And so the point of that is that I had no respect for that guy. And the truth is, if other Marines saw him do that, they would have no respect for him. But that's not the kind of leader Jesus is. Jesus is a different kind of king than any king that had ever walked the face of the earth. In fact, when you think about kings from this time period where Jesus is on the earth, most kings always live for themselves. They may care about the people, but the people are secondary to their agenda, right? Who was the greatest king in, in Israel's history? Well, Solomon had the most money, but I, I mean, when you think about great kings, David, right? Did David care more about himself than the people? You bet. Because that's what led to Bathsheba and Uriah. So even the greatest king in their history proved he loved himself more than his people. But that's not so with Jesus. Jesus is a new kind of king, a different kind of king. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at this text in Mark 1. And by the way, we were going to do Mark 1 9 through 13, but as I was getting ready for it last night, I realized I'll never get through verse 12. I, I'm going to do 9, 10, 11. And that's all I'll be able to get through today. And so it would have been, I would have been jamming stuff in to try to get it, and there's too much here in 9, 10, and 11. So this is going to be a two part thing on 
a different kind of king. We're going to look at 9, 10, 11 today. And for you guys who did your reading, you're already ahead for next week. We're going to look at 12 and 13. So for those who haven't been here in a while, Mark's gospel is where we're at. And it's the first written gospel account. And it was written from Peter's perspective. And it was written to Roman Christians to encourage them they were being persecuted. And he's primarily focused in his writing on Jesus as the servant king. But he also writes in there about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and discipleship. He talks about the kingdom of heaven uh, and kingdom of God a lot. But Mark starts off in verse 1 with the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the King, the Son of God. And last week we saw how God reveals that good news, the euangelion, and we talked a lot about that word euangelion. It translates gospel, good news, glad tidings, all of those. But picture when the angels came when Jesus was born and they were going glad tidings, what they were saying is euangelion, euangelion. So in this time period, when they wanted to make a public announcement that was good news about the emperor or the king, they would say, euangelion, euangelion, like hear ye, hear ye. And there was only three instances they could do that. When a new king was crowned, when a new king was born, or when a king had a great military victory. Those were the only three occasions that they could go euangelion. And so, and it was most of the time it was used, it was used in a plural sense, like not just one good news, but there were other good news things that were going on. But in the Bible, it's always singular because there's only one good news, and it's that Jesus is king and he reigns. And so last week we saw in verses one through eight how God reveals the euangelion through his message first. We saw his message that euangelion, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and so what Mark does is he quotes from Isaiah 40. I'm sorry, he doesn't quote Isaiah 40. We went to Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52 to get a handle on that word euangelion uh, and it, it meaning that our God reigns. It means peace. It means order. It means all those things wrapped up in one. And Mark brings that out when he uses that word. We Second, we saw that God reveals it through His messengers. And here he quotes from Malachi 3.1 and from Isaiah and Isaiah 40. And when he quotes these passages, he's, these people are pointing to the marker that would come to the prophet who would be Elijah who would point to Messiah. And third is the marker who is John the Baptist. He is Elijah and we saw that. And then finally, he reveals it through his Messiah himself who he says will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral man. He wasn't just a a good leader. He was God among us. And so Mark begins his gospel with the good news and then points to the forerunner, to the Elijah, because it was one, demanded by God, 
too because reform was needed. So John the Baptist is out there preaching repent, repent, repent so the people of Israel would be ready for Messiah. That was the job of the herald to get the people ready. He's calling the nations back to God. And then the third thing, he heralds Christ's coming. He's preparing the way. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. So today we're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to see that God reveals this different kind of king who first of all identifies with his people. He identifies with his people. And then in the second thing, he intervenes for his people. And both those come right out of the verses 9, 10, and 11. So God reveals a king who identifies with his people. Most kings throughout history do not identify with his people. Now, you and I, we don't really get that because we don't live in an absolute monarchy here, right? But if you go, John Monger grew up in Bhutan, the country of Bhutan, with an absolute king. If that king was walking down the street and he saw you over on the side of the road and he goes, I want that property over there. Guess what? The house that was just yours just became his. We don't understand that. If that king over in Bhutan was walking down the road and he said, you need to get out of the road. I don't care how strong you were. I don't care how big you were. I don't care how much money you had. If you weren't the king and he said that, you did it. Because if you didn't, he'd kick you out of the country. See, we don't understand that kind of leading, that monarchy mentality. But Jesus is an absolute monarch. But he's different from every other kind of monarch. If, if somebody over here had on a king headdress and told you to get out of the road, I don't care if it's the president. What are you going to say? Hey, I got my rights to be here. I'm not doing anything wrong. I promise you, people aren't going to do it unless the Secret Service pulls their guns and makes you move. But most people are going to put up flat. Why? Because we're not used to absolute rule in our life. And we don't like it. If we're really honest, nobody here in this room likes somebody ruling over them. And so we're going to say with Jesus a king who rules absolutely, but who identifies with his people and who intervenes for them. So we're going to read all four accounts of the baptism of Jesus today. We're going to start in Matthew, then we're going to jump to Luke, then we're going to go to John, then we're going to come back and finish with Mark 1. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 3. And we're going to look at verse 13. This is Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. Bless you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now flip over to Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Luke 3, 21. 
is Luke's account of the baptism. Now when all the people were baptized, now we're talking hundreds of thousands of people have been baptized in the Jordan River. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So in Matthew's account, and now here in Luke's account, it says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Okay, now let's go to John. John chapter 1. John 1, verse 29. Now this is John the Baptist speaking. Alright, and he just got through saying that he baptized with water, but the but one coming after is going to baptize with the Spirit. Uh, and he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now go to Mark 1. And we'll look at our text. In verse 9, In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. These are the words of God. And so... Mark is revealing a king here who identifies with his people. How? The people are coming to be baptized. Why? But in preparation of Messiah. John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance for people to come, admit they need a Messiah, admit they need His purity, His righteousness, And so Jesus comes from Nazareth. We don't know anything about what happened except one little, well, maybe a couple little things that are mentioned in Scripture. One where He's at the temple when He's 12. But we don't really know what happened between 12 and 30. 18 years. 18 years of His life. We don't know anything about because the Holy Spirit didn't want us to know anything about it. God the Father didn't want us to know anything about it. He wanted us to know this, though, because in all four Gospel accounts, it says He went to be baptized and the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. It's not a dove. I mean, you guys have seen pictures of Jesus 
in the river with a dove right there. It's not a dove. It says like a dove. But people put a dove there (laughs) thinking that that's what it was. No. It says the Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. But it wasn't a dove. It was like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament when the glory would come down and be on somebody like a Moses, right? It was something that was visible, but there's a reason that the term dove is used there. And we'll get to that in a minute. But it says Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Who's he writing to here? The Romans. They wouldn't have known where Nazareth is. They don't know anything about Nazareth. Guys, we know Nazareth because of the Jesus story and Christmas and all that. Most people in the world during that time had no idea where Nazareth was. So he's having to identify where Nazareth is in Galilee. It's over in Galilee. And so it says he came to be baptized. Why was he baptized by John? Why did he have to be baptized? Was he sinful? Everybody else was baptized because they were repenting because of their sin. Yeah. Was Jesus circumcised? Yeah, he was. He was circumcised. You know what? Here's the thing. People use this to say that Jesus had sin because he was baptized. That's ridiculous. He was circumcised. Did he need to be circumcised? No. What was the circumcision? It was the mark of the covenant. He was God. He's the one that made the covenant. Right? He didn't need to be circumcised. Why did Jesus' mother Mary present a sin offering at His birth? That was normal for Jewish mothers to have to present a sin offering because this child coming into the world had a sin nature. They were sinful. And so they presented a sin offering. Did you need to present a sin offering for Jesus? Did He have a sin nature? No. But she did. Why did Jesus go to the feast? Why did He go to Passover? Why did He he participate in the Day of Atonement? Did He need to do any of those? No. But He did because He submitted Himself to all aspects of Jewish law. Not Jewish tradition, Jewish law. What the Father had said, and by being baptized in the Jordan, He is validating John the Baptist's message. He's coming to him as a good Jew to be baptized because he doesn't want people to see Christianity as a spinoff of Judaism. John was the forerunner sent by God to say the Messiah is coming. And so Jesus went and allowed John to baptize him, one, to authenticate John. He wanted to authenticate John and say this is true Judaism, what he's preaching here. This is not, I'm not bringing a new religion. Do people today think of Christianity as true Judaism? No, they separate it. You've got Judaism and then you've got Christianity. But Christianity is true Judaism. Jesus is Messiah. And so, three things happen at Jesus' baptism here. The first is, John, representing the Old Testament 
And Elijah is pointing to the Messiah. And by the way, when we read that in John where he says, Behold what? The Lamb of God? Do you know who John's parents were? Zacharias and Elizabeth. Do you know what tribe both Zacharias and Elizabeth came from? Levi. They were in the Aaronic descent. The priestly descent. In fact, Zacharias was serving as the priest in the temple. temple. So if that's true of them, what would that say about John the Baptist? He's priestly, right? What was the role of the priest in the Old Testament in relation to the sacrifice? They they presented the sacrifice. Have you ever thought about that? That when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, he's baptizing Jesus, he's presenting the sacrifice. Isn't that cool? That is. How that correlates to the way God had foreshadowed through his priests throughout history. So the first thing that we see is John's baptism here of Jesus is a priestly presentation of him as the ultimate sacrifice. And and we said from what he said in John 1, look, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the first thing. Second thing, God the Father speaks here. He speaks from heaven. And he quotes Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And we're going to look at those in a minute. But God the Father speaks. And people hear it. People hear it. And so... God the Father is witnessing. And then the third thing we see in all the passages is what? The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, completing the Trinity picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together for our salvation. And there's people that deny the Trinity. There's some very popular preachers out there that deny the Trinity. But it's because it's not mentioned in Scripture. But it's seen all throughout Scripture. And so that's what's going on here. So Jesus' baptism, guys, symbolized the sinner's baptism into the righteousness of Christ. In fact, when I baptize people and I put them under, I, I, I say that you know this is dying, dying when you go down, right? Dying with Him and then raising up in the newness of life. Dying with Christ in your old ways, coming up a new creature in Christ. Every person needs to be cleansed from their impurity. We all do. From their sin. And Jesus' righteousness fulfilled all the requirements for God. And so um, we couldn't keep the law. So He did it for us and He serves as the perfect sacrifice. And John knew that and he said, whoa, I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. And what did Jesus say in Matthew? He said, listen, it's proper to fulfill all righteousness. What did He mean by that? Well, He's talking about the righteousness that He would provide to us because He is identifying with us in our sin and being baptized. Does that make sense? So Jesus is a king who identifies with His people. How cool is that? Is that kind of king you want to follow? It's the kind of king I want to follow. Somebody who's willing to be humiliated 
you know, to come down and, and to take on a, a lesser form and then actually go be baptized because he's identifying with my sin. The fact that, and not just me, I want you to think of the worst person. There, there are some people who are believers today who were pretty horrendous people. They did some pretty horrendous things. Jesus identified with them. Just like he does us. And so he's a king who identifies with his people. Well, he doesn't just identify with his people. In verse 10, if you look, it says that when he came up out of the water, what happened? It says immediately the heavens were being torn. And the being torn is in the present tense. Being torn means it's, it's starting. It's the process is beginning. So when he comes up, he said the heavens are being torn open. Well, who's up in the heavens? God is reconciling now. He's beginning that reconciling of man into a right relationship with him. That's what it's talking about. And it says, and the spirit, well, I think, you know, let me go back to that for a second about the torn. What happened in Matthew 27 after Jesus died? When he died? What? The veil tore from top to bottom. That's immediately what I thought of when, when it says this here. That torn open means the process is beginning because now he's intervening on our behalf. He's not just identifying with us, he is intervening. And God sees him as the mechanism for his wrath that he's going to pour out for our sin and make it possible for us to be in a right relationship with him. And it says the Spirit, he saw the Spirit descending on him like the Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, guys, whenever the Holy Spirit would take over somebody, it uh, it was always a radical demonstration of the power of God. And, and that power would override man's inhibitions or abilities. It, it, he would be empowered with sometimes supernatural power to prophesy, to uh, do something really strong. So think about some of the people that it says the Holy Spirit came upon him. What about King Saul? What happened when the Holy Spirit came on him? He began prophesying. Praising God and, and speaking God's truth. And it, it was almost uncommanded. It just happened. He had no control over it, right? King David. When the Holy Spirit came on him, what did it enable him to do? He killed a giant. He killed a giant. Killed a bear. Killed a lion. I mean, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy, about how, that's about how old he was, doesn't kill a lion or a bear. But you have that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He did just like he came on him to kill Goliath. How does David kill 10,000 men? Saul has killed his thousand. David is 10,000. David would go out and just wipe out people. And guys, warfare back then was brutal. I mean, it was up close and personal with axes and spears and, and you know, pitchforks, whatever. Sometimes they could get their hands on. And so David had the power of God to do a lot of those things. What about Gideon? 300 guys wiped out over 100,000 guys. Would you take those odds out if I said, Al, I'm going to give you 300 guys. You've got an army of 100,000 coming over the hill there, but you got it. Go get them. 
You're going to be like, uh-uh, no, no way, nah, uh not today. I, and literally, there's nobody in this room that would take that task. There's nobody. But Gideon took it, right? Gideon took it. He had to have some help. Lord, show me. Make this wet, make this dry. Lord, make this dry, make this wet. Okay? He, he had to have some, some confirmation there. But Gideon was another one that, that did that. What about at Pentecost? They just all start speaking different languages, man. That they, they weren't in control. And the Spirit came on them in a radical way. But when the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, when, the, when He descends down, it's a gentle fit. That's why there's a dove there. Doves are gentle. They've always been known as gentle throughout time. And it's almost like Cinderella slipping her foot into the slipper. It's just a fit. There was no radical change. But it's, it, it was what it was supposed to be. You see, Jesus was fully God. But in the second person of the Trinity, He did not manifest that power as a human. He put that power aside by His choice. He never stopped being God. You know, we, we have this idea in our minds that He's like Clark Kent. Like Jesus is God, but He disguised Himself in His human body. But guys, He by His own choice could not do miracles some places. Now, He could have overridden that at any time because He was God, but He didn't. He limited Himself for the period of time that He was supposed to do that. Does that make sense to you guys? So, He, was, he never stopped being God, but He limited Himself and He would only do what the Father told Him to do. And the way He manifested the miracles was never in the second person of the Trinity's power. It was in the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. So when the Spirit came down, that began His earthly ministry. And the first thing we're going to see next week the Spirit does is drive them out into the wilderness and we'll see why next week. But does that make sense to you guys? Because people have this idea, well, Jesus was... He was God, but He was human, but like He was omniscient and He was omnipotent. No, he, he never stopped having the ability to do it, but He set it aside for the period of time that He walked the earth as a human. And, and the Holy Spirit came down. Listen, when He was human, did He crave food? Did He get hungry? Of course, we know He did. What, did he feel pain if he stubbed his toe or cut himself? Of course he did. Did, did he get a cold? Or an illness? He learned obedience through suffering and identifies with us so he then can intervene for us in a way, he he says through you know God says through the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews four, he was just like us. He was tempted in every way. Let us approach with confidence his throne. Why? Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. 
He lost loved ones. His dad. We don't know anything about his dad other than early on in his life. He probably had to bury his father. That probably was painful for him. He had siblings and brothers that turned on him, that, that really turned against him. He had to obey God times he didn't want to in the flesh. Father, take this from me. There were times that he had to get away to rest. He was asleep in the boat. His body was a human body. He was 100% God and he was 100% man. And so, in verse 11, God quotes Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And I want to look at those real quick for a second because Psalm 2-7, we read what he said, what Mark quotes here is, you are my beloved son. When we see that, we think, okay, he's God's son. But it was bigger than that. And that quote is from Psalm chapter 2. So let's flip back to Psalm 2 real quick and give some context. Remember, in the Jewish mindset, whenever somebody quoted from an Old Testament passage, they would only give a partial quote, but they wanted the people to get the whole thing. It wasn't just about that part they were quoting. And so, go back to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 2. And listen to what Psalm 2 says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The kings of the earth, the rulers, are against the Lord and His Messiah, His King. Who's the kings of the earth? You and me, right? Would that apply to us, Al? Yeah. And what does it say? They set themselves against God and His King. Verse 3. They wanted to what? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what these men, these kings of earth said. I want my freedom. I don't want to be ruled. <laughs> I will not submit to God's Word. I will not submit to God's will. I will not submit to God's values. I will not submit to His morality. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is man, right Al? You said it. This is man. My friend Tommy Nelson, you know what he says? Satan is a fan of man. He wants man to be his own leader. How does that work out for us, by the way, when we lead our own lives? Uh-huh. But we do, don't we? If we're really honest, we don't want to go there, but we end up getting sucked down that road. And we're going to see next week how Satan does it because he is sly. But this is what... What God the Father, this is my Son. He's taking them back to this. And He's saying, how does He respond to what man says? What's verse 4 say? He laughs. he laughs. This is like, guys, a little tiny flea opposing the Creator God. Verse 5, 
Then he speaks to them in anger. In verse 6, As for me, I put who? I've set my king, Jesus. This is Jesus he's talking about. I've set my Jesus on Zion. If the whole world rejects him and me, it doesn't matter because my king's going to rule. Verse 7, I will announce my decree. You are my son. By the way, guys, when he says you are my son, that was a coronation formula. Whenever a king during this time period was coronating his son, he would say, this is my son. He is a legitimate heir to the throne in front of all the people. And that's what's going on. This is a coronation. Jesus is the legitimate king. And then, Mark quotes from Isaiah 42, God saying, My chosen in whom my soul delights. My chosen one. My soul delights in Him. He is fit for duty. Does God believe Jesus is divine? Yes. Does God believe that Jesus is human? Yes. Does God believe Jesus never sinned? Does that make Him fit to be the sacrifice? Yes. He is the only sacrifice that is worthy. Undiminished deity and perfect humanity in one person. It is Jesus. I want to read a quote to you by a guy named Alfred Edersheim. He wrote back in the late 1800s, and, and he really, this is, this is an amazing quote. I, I love this quote that he wrote. It says, Jesus has made the sublime teachings of the Old Testament the common possession of the world. And I'm going to go on, but think about what he's saying there. He's saying that, listen, what was the sublime teachings of the Old Testament? Who were, who were supposed to be the guardians of the truth about Messiah? Who was supposed to be the ones who knew about Messiah and it was a mystery to the rest of the world, but they were the ones to be the, the spokespeople for Messiah. It was the Jewish people. And Jesus comes along and He made all these Old Testament mysteries revealed to Gentiles, to the whole world. It wasn't anymore just about the Jews. It never really was, but Jesus made it accessible for us. And He founded a great brotherhood of which God is our Father. Do you realize in Jesus, every one of us is brothers? Doesn't matter your economic background. Doesn't matter what part of the country you came in. Doesn't matter your skin color. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Jesus is the common denominator. Amen. And His blood covers us all, which makes God our Father. And that's what He's saying. He says, He alone has exhibited a life in which no fault could be found. Remember Jesus said, Who convicts me of sin? He's put forth a teaching to which absolutely no exception can be taken. Now just stop and think about that for a second about Jesus. Every other teacher in history, I don't care how great, Buddha, Muhammad, uh, if you go in religious, you can go intellectual, Socrates, every great teacher in history, you could attack their teaching and find flaws in it. But not Jesus. 
His teaching was absolute truth because He was absolute truth. What did Jesus teach, guys, that wasn't true? Was there anything that He taught that wasn't true? No. He's absolute truth. The man of Nazareth has by universal consent been the mightiest factor in our world's history, both socially, morally, intellectually, and politically. He's, he's rocked all those worlds as the greatest influence. If he's not the Messiah, Edersheim says, he's at least thus far has done the Messiah's work. And if he's not Messiah, then the world has not and never can have a Messiah. That's what Edersheim says. If Jesus isn't him, then there isn't going to be a Messiah. So, you think about Jesus. John the Baptist said, this is him. This is Messiah. This is a king worth following. He's a king who identifies with you. He's a king who intervenes for you. That's what John the Baptist said. God the Father, this is him. This is Messiah. He's the king. And the Holy Spirit, this is Him. This is the one. What do you say? How did John know? John knew? Because he had the Spirit. Because he had the Spirit. Had the Holy Spirit. Said the Spirit was in him from his birth. And so, is he the Messiah King? Is he your Messiah King? Does He really reign over you as Messiah King? Or do you just have Him over here in your Savior box where a lot of people like to keep Jesus? See, a lot of people don't like Jesus in the King box. They like Him in the Savior box. Because in the Savior box, they can just cry out to Him when they need something. But in the King box, it means when you get up in the morning, you get off your bed, you say, okay, King, I'm yours. What do you want me to do today? What? Don't hear anything? Okay, well then, I'm going to go this way, but I'm, I'm open to wherever you lead me because you're my king. So if I go to work and he wants me to go over here, today I'm going over here because I'm following him. See, that's why we can't get too trapped into our daytimers. We can't get too trapped into our calendars. We can't get too trapped into our business deals because we don't own them if we're his. This only applies to us if we're His. But if we're His, He owns us all. And we're His, he, we're his subjects. He's our King. See, we just don't live like that in this country. And guys, I'm telling you, we can't continue if we call ourselves His. This is not about a guilt trip. This is about reality. And there's far too little preaching about the kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus. He is king. He's Messiah king who came to lead His people. Not just to die for His people, but to lead His people. And He did die for us. And He secured us in that relationship. But you know what? If you live like you're your king after you trust Him, what kind of witness are you to the world? You're not the witness that He wants. You're not an ambassador for Him. You're an ambassador for the world. And so, He rules. Whether you want Him to or not, He rules. Now, what does it say in Philippians 2? That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He's Lord. I want to do it this side of heaven. 
I don't want to have to wait till I'm on the other side and I do it out of forced submission. I'm doing it willfully because he did everything for me. He identified with me. He intervenes for me. And we're going to see next week as he goes through the temptations how amazing it was that he did what he did and what those temptations were because he intervenes for us all the time. He intercedes for us. He knows every weakness we have. And so he's not sitting there going, okay, you know what? Bob blew it again. Stupid Bob. God, what am I going to do with him? That's not what he says. Yeah, that's what our wives say. He's right. That's what our wives say, but that's not what he says. He's intervening. Father, help Bob deal with blank, whatever it is. Strengthen him. He is our advocate. He's our priest. And he's our king. So, um, Father, thank you for the reminder of having a king who's a different kind of king, a king who identifies with us and Lord in every way and and yet he he leads us so perfectly. Forgive us, Lord, for not submitting to his leadership. Lord, give us a renewed zeal to to really want to follow Jesus to have a, a, a renewed love for Him that, that empowers us to obey Him. And thank You for giving us a King who intervenes. I thank You that You recorded that the heavens were torn open so that, Lord, He could be the one to step in our place. He could be the one who could deliver us from, Lord, not only from death, but from sin. Thank You for the power that you give us through your Holy Spirit and through the intercession of Jesus. I pray for each guy here that as we leave today, Lord, we would leave with a renewed loyalty to our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.